Now, I hope uh, that many of you did get a chance to read through the book of Romans. I think it is important, not least of which, if what I'm saying this morning doesn't ring true, then at some point during this week you need to be taking me aside and having a quiet word. And I mean that in all all seriousness. But I want to start this morning um, actually by reading a passage in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because I believe this passage is actually key to our understanding how the book of Romans came to be written. Now hopefully you'll see its significance as we we go through the talk this morning. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied... And you have all that is, uh, and all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Now the question I particularly want to address this morning is why did Paul write this letter to the Romans? And the answer, I believe, is contained within the letter itself. Now, when Paul wrote, he would often do so in such a way as if he were having a conversation. He would ask and answer questions. He would anticipate and respond to possible objections. And he would also, usually towards the end of his letters, include a section on how to practically work out the teaching he'd just given. Now, as we take a brief overview of the whole letter, looking at the issues he deals with, paying attention to the question he asks... And, and how he uh, answers them, and to the practical advice that he gives, then his reasons for writing, I believe, will come clear, become clearer. Now, I don't want you to be thinking through this morning, is it this, is it that? So I'm going to tell you what I think straight away, and hopefully prove it to you uh, as, as, as we go on. See, right at the outset, I believe that the internal evidence of the letter suggests that Paul wrote to prevent a potential split occurring within the church between Jewish and Gentile believers. He did not want the Church of Jesus Christ to be represented by separate Jewish and Gentile congregations. Now that doesn't mean that Paul would have approved of the modern ecumenical movement. The letter to the Romans contains an in-depth discussion of the significance of the gospel, and it does so from both a Jewish and a Gentile perspective. Paul wanted to encourage unity in the truth, not with people who have compromised their belief in the gospel. So what was the cause of the tension? Who was to blame? How had these tensions arisen? Now, to answer these questions, it requires us to do some detective work, primarily considering the internal content of the letter, but also looking to some external sources, particularly when considering the local situation that faced the church in Rome. Now, when considering the internal evidence, it's important to understand who exactly Paul is addressing. So we must Pay careful attention to the little words, those personal pronouns, the I's, the U's, the them's and the they's. 
Now, it's perfectly obvious when Paul says I, he's referring to himself. And the letter contains a lot of his own thoughts and feelings. When he uses them and they, and he does so particularly, you would have noticed through chapters 9 to 11, the them and the they he's referring to is Israel, to the Jews. On most other occasions, when he uses the pronoun you, he's actually referring to Gentile believers, though not exclusively. See, sometimes he directly addresses you who know the law. One particular example you'll find at the beginning of chapter 7. Now, chapter 6 and 7 both deal with the effect of sin within believers. And if he's dealing with Jewish believers, particularly in chapter 7, that means when we read chapter 6, he's dealing particularly with Gentile believers. Now, having used these clues to identify who he's uh, referring to, we can then consider what point is he making and why he needs to make it. So what is the internal evidence that Paul wrote to preserve and promote unity within the body? Now, if we take that practical section of the letter, chapters 12 through to 16, when we read it carefully, you'll find interspersed throughout each topic of discussion an appeal for unity. And there's so many that I've just highlighted a few, and every time I listen to it, I hear another one. See, almost invariably, when there is a dispute within a body, at the root of it, you will find human pride. So in this section, Paul states that a man should not think of himself more highly than he ought, but rather to regard himself with more sober judgment. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, probably because within the body, those causing division were thinking rather too highly of themselves. However, he goes on, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Be of the same mind toward one another. Owe nothing to anyone except to love another and to love without hypocrisy. He tells them to receive the one who is weak in faith and do not have disputes about doubtful things. He tells them neither to judge another servant nor to show contempt for your brother. He says, pursue peace and the things which edify another. Try to please your neighbour for his good. In other words, he's saying to them, build each other up, don't tear each other down. Paul exhorts them to glorify God with one mind and one mouth and receive each other just as Christ received us. So what were they arguing about? Now in chapters 9 to 11... Paul is actually dealing with the question, has God rejected Israel? Has the Gentile church replaced unbelieving Israel? Has Israel fallen beyond redemption? Is their hardness of heart temporary or permanent? Does God have a future plan and purpose for them? Now, why would would Paul write this whole section on this issue? Well, probably because there were members of the... uh, Fellowship were beginning to hold to those views. And in a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentile believers, who would most likely to be holding those views? Probably not all the Gentiles, but those who had significant influence. And who's likely to be upset and offended by such views? The Jewish believers. So I believe this was the most likely cause of the tension that existed amongst the Christians in Rome. However, we need to ask, where had these ideas come from? What happened to bring this situation about? 
Now to do this, we must try to understand something of the local situation. And something maybe of the history of the church in Rome, if we're to understand what Paul has written. Now the importance of doing this kind of research was first brought home to me about 20 years ago by a man who has actually spoken twice at Gateway, a man who indeed gave Tom and Brian and Ray um, valuable guidance when Gateway was first established three years ago, a man called David Pawson. I went to hear him speak about 20 years ago at a local church, uh, St. Sebastian's. Many of you will know the vicar at the time, Derek Burden. And David's topic that evening was, why did Paul write to the Romans? Now, rather than simply restating what was said in that talk, I decided I must do my own research. So this talk is pretty much the product of my own studies. However, it would be wrong not to acknowledge the significant influence that David Pawson's teaching has had, on, uh, has had on the way I've come to read and understand the book, and therefore what I'm presenting to you now. Now, we don't know exactly how the church began in Rome. We do know that it wasn't started by Paul, and there's no record of it being started by any of the other apostles either. What we do know is that when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, Jews from Rome were present and witnessed the event. Therefore, the most likely explanation is that the church in Rome was first established when these Jews returned home. The church in Rome, therefore, was almost entirely composed of Jewish believers. I say almost because when you read the account of the book of Acts, it said those from Rome were Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism, proselytes. So, the original church at Rome was essentially a Jewish church. Now, for more than a hundred years prior to Paul writing his letter, there had been a thriving Jewish community in Rome, dating at least as far back as 59 BC, and more than likely even further back than that. Now, as is often the case with a strictly religious community that interacts but does not fully integrate into a society, they were tolerated but often viewed with considerable suspicion. Now, reading about the history of Roman society, you get the strong impression that it was not a safe place to be. You see, even the most powerful members of society, those with considerable political influence, were not safe. And even emperors became the targets of subversive plots to assassinate them. Therefore, they were highly suspicious by nature and very quick to exercise their power to eliminate their, enmity, uh, their enemies before they became victims themselves. Now, from time to time, disputes would erupt from within the Jewish community and it was not unheard of for the Roman authorities to simply expel them all from the city. One such occasion happened about 30 years earlier than Paul wrote his letter, around about the time that Jesus was crucified. However, such a law was hard to enforce. Some of the Jews, no doubt, would have just simply kept a low profile and then carried on life without drawing too much attention to themselves. And when nobody seemed to mind or question it, very soon others would drift back. So that within a few years, the Jewish community was actually back in Rome, thriving, just as it had done before, within 10 years. Now, however, as Christianity began to emerge and spread throughout the region, these disputes among the Jewish communities began to increase. That's what we read about in the book of Acts. Now, one such eruption happened in the Egyptian city of Alexandria in Egypt, 
And it happened in AD 38. And the disturbance was so great that it required the intervention of Roman soldiers. Now this particular disturbance did not go unnoticed in Rome. A man called Claudius, who at the time was the emperor's uncle, was particularly concerned and was determined that such an outbreak of violence would not be repeated in Rome. Now in AD 41, following the assassination of his nephew, Claudius became emperor. And one of the first things that he did was to effectively ban Jews in the city from meeting together in large congregations. Now Claudius had only a very limited understanding of Christians. Now most of what he understood was through consultation with his close friend and confidant, a puppet king who ruled over northern Israel, a man called Herod Agrippa. We read about him in the book of Acts. Now from Herod, he would have learned, and this is kind of confirmed what the authorities in that region thought at the time, it's confirmed in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, from Herod, he would have learned that Christians were made up of a small sect of Jews who thought their Messiah had come. However, following his execution, this small band of Jews stole his body from the grave and were going around trying to convince people that he was being raised from the dead. Now, the spread of Christianity was not a major concern of Claudius. He had far bigger worries concerning the empire. But he did recognise the threat, even small threats. They were suspicious by their nature. They didn't want things getting out of hand. So he did try to actually halt its progress, not by directing all Rome's attention on stamping out Christianity, but he did so by um, issuing an edict. And this edict made grave robbing a capital offence, an offence punishable by death. Now you might say, well, how do you know that was particularly uh, targeted Christians? Well, I don't, but it does provide an excellent explanation as to why he issued that edict in Nazareth. See, I believe this was intended to frighten Christians. And the evidence of this, when they issued um, edicts, they would engrave them on large stones. And in the late 19th century, this particular stone was unearthed in Nazareth, and it's now on display at a museum in Paris. Now, if this plan was intended to discourage the spread of Christianity, it did not have the desired effect. See, we learn from the book of Acts how Christianity was growing rapidly, and as it did so, Judaizers would stir up trouble um, and unbelieving Jews, and that, that often left, led to riots. And we do know from what uh, Paul says in the introduction of the letter that the Roman church was growing successfully. Therefore, it was a kind of an inevitability that such an eruption would happen one day in Rome. And this is indeed what happened. In AD 49, there was such an eruption that Claudius was led to expel all the Jews from Rome once more. And that fact is recorded for us in the, actually in the book of Acts. You read it in, Luke chapter, uh, in, in Acts chapter 18. And it's also confirmed by the writings of ancient historians such as Saturnius and Tacitus. However, what Claudius had not accounted for was that although all the Jews were expelled, that this didn't mean all the Christians as well, since by this time... Gentiles were forming a large but significant group within the church. Now the consequence of the Jews' expulsion was that the Roman church was now entirely Gentile. The Gentiles would now have to take on the role of leadership and bear the responsibility of continuing the Christian witness in Rome. 
Now these Gentiles, Christians, were faithful and obedient, and God blessed them. And without opposition from unbelieving Jews, the church flourished. Now, this is where the relevance of the passage in Deuteronomy I began with comes in. You remember what it says about how God blessed the people of Israel during their years in the wilderness, how he kept them, fed them and provided for all their needs, and how he warned them to remember him when he prospered them in the land, and how God warned them that they would forget him, how their hearts would become lifted up, and how they would take credit themselves for the prosperity and success that God was going to give them. Now, I believe that something very similar happened among the Gentile Christians in early Rome. That during this, um, some of them began to believe that the success and prosperity they were experiencing was due to some virtue within themselves. They understood that God controlled and governed nations. Wasn't it therefore reasonable to assume that God had caused Claudius to remove all the Jews in order to replace them as the people of God with Gentile Christians? See, under such circumstances, you can begin to see how the first seeds of what we now know today as replacement theology, theology could begin to form. So it's no surprise then, when the Jews began to filter back over the next few years, and more than likely in much greater numbers, see, in AD 54, the Emperor Claudius died and was replaced by his stepson. And therefore, the Jews would felt much freer to come back. So, you can see how they're... Ret- uh, uh, you can see how upon their return that they probably wouldn't receive the kind of genuine welcome that they were entitled to expect. You can see how their return could have caused a bit of insecurity in the Gentile leaders and why there was an uneasy tension emerging between the two communities. Now we must be careful not to, to judge them too quickly because we can all become a little bit puffed up. We're all prone to that attitude. This is something that Charles Spurgeon recognised very early in his ministry. Charles Spurgeon was actually first invited to preach as a 17-year-old, little more than a boy. And his first sermon caused such an effect that uh, they asked him to preach in the evening, and a lot of people came. And within weeks, people were coming in their hundreds to listen to him. And by the time he got into his early 20s, the hundreds had turned into thousands. Now, you can see how that would go to a young man's head. But God gave him a word, and he gave him a word through the prophet Jeremiah. See, in Jeremiah chapter 45, Jeremiah issues a warning to his ambitious young secretary, Baruch, and says, don't desire great things for yourself. And that was a word that uh, Spurgeon held on to throughout his entire ministry. Okay, what's the biblical evidence that speaks of a Jewish return to Rome? See, I mentioned Acts 18, and there we read about how Paul came to preach in Corinth, Greece. When he arrived there, he met a Jewish Christian called Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And they, it tells us, were among those who had recently been expelled from Rome by Claudius. Now, they immediately became friends. They shared a trade, tent making. They lived and worked alongside Paul in the ministry of the gospel for at least 18 months, more than likely uh, more than two years. We also know that during that time, they risked their life to save Paul's. Eventually the time came, though, for Paul to leave, for, uh, leave um, Corinth for Syria, and Aquila and Priscilla accompanied him. 
However, when the ship stopped at Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla decided to stay and continue their work for the Lord there. And it was while they were there that they became influential in the life of a fervent young preacher called Apollos. And realising that he knew only the baptism of John, they discreetly took him across to one side and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. Now we do not hear again about Aquila and Priscilla in the book of Acts. However, we do know their return to Rome. Because in Romans chapter 16, Paul instructs the readers of this letter to greet them and the church that meets in their house. Now this raises several questions. Were they meeting as a separate fellowship apart from the main body in Rome? Or was that simply part of the normal structure? Were they meeting as a separate house church because Gentile leaders teaching replacement theology and having judgmental attitudes were insensitively discriminating against Jewish believers? Is this how Paul came to write the letter? Did it come through Paul's close friendship with Aquila and Priscilla? That upon their return, they saw this division occurring. They saw the dangers of division into separate Jewish and Gentile fellowships. And they thought to themselves, this is serious. What should we do? And no doubt, as a result of much prayer, they thought, Paul. So they, could it be that they were the ones that sent word to Paul? Come quickly. We need your help. But Paul could not come. See, he was already committed to going to Jerusalem, but there was an urgent ne- where there was an urgent need. But Paul couldn't ignore it. No doubt, after much prayer, this is why Paul felt led to write. See, when we ask the question of why did Paul write to the church at Rome, one aspect of that question we need to consider is why Paul? Why not Peter or James or John? See, if what I've been describing is accurate... Imagine the reaction that Gentile lead, of the Gentile leaders if they turned up. You're a Jew. Your whole ministry's been to Jews. Well, you would see it from their point of view, wouldn't you? But they could not make the same accusation against Paul. Yes, he was a Jew, but someone who was well known for risking his life time and again to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul would have found it easy. He didn't know them personally, only by reputation. He had not founded this church and he recognised the importance of not building on where others had built. However, he couldn't ignore it. He couldn't simply brush it under the carpet. And he admits in chapter 15 that he has had to speak to them boldly on certain points. So I believe this is the most likely reason why Paul came to write this letter. Now, given the delicate and precarious nature of the circumstances... He would have spent much time in prayer asking God for the wisdom and sensitivity to deal effectively with the situation. Now as Christians, we believe that although each book of the Bible has a human author, that the scriptures are given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now if there's anyone has any doubt of that fact, we need only consider the wisdom with which Paul began his letter. See, given that he's writing to a church where there are influential Gentile leaders who have come to think of themselves more highly than they ought, who have taken on board some false ideas and judgmental attitudes that are the source of, attention, uh, source of tension within the church, Paul begins the letter by introducing himself as a bondservant. A bondservant, a slave, 
Someone who has given up all rights of his own and dedicated himself to serve only the interests of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in just a few words, he had begun to lance the boil and to release the poison of human pride that was beginning to threaten the well-being of the church at Rome. He goes on, called to be an apostle. Paul is one of the leading authorities in the church. But he does not see it as a position that he's chosen, that he has a right to, that he has earned, and that he needs to feel insecure about, lest anyone usurp his position, and many tried. He was chosen and appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will remain an apostle for as long as it pleases his Lord for him to continue. The opening section reveals Paul's heart towards these leaders. He was not going to put them down or condemn them. Neither is he prepared to condone their wrongdoing, nor ignore it by sweeping under the carpet. I have written to you boldly on some points, he says. He has written because he wants to bless them. He wants to, he prays earnestly for them. He desires fellowship with them, to build them up, to encourage them, not in the wrong things that they're thinking and doing, but to get them back on the straight and narrow way back on the paths of righteousness so that they can receive and enjoy God's blessing once more. He wants them restored, not destroyed, which is why he wants to share the gospel with them. You see, at the root of the problem was human pride, and the only effective solution to it is the gospel. Not that they already didn't know it, but they needed reminding of what they once were. They needed reminding of what they've been saved from what they've been saved for, and what they were being saved to. And Paul is wise enough to know that there are two sides to every argument. So he approaches the gospel from both a Jewish and a Gentile perspective. He wants each party in this dispute to see things from the other's point of view. So Paul begins by describing what happens to a society that abandons their knowledge of God. See, there are many people in the world today who describe themselves as atheists or agnostics. These are not terms that Paul would either endorse or recognise. Rather, he would describe them as people who are deceiving themselves by deliberately suppressing the truth. Paul states that they have consciously and willfully abandoned the knowledge of God which has been made plain to them since the beginning of time in his creation. What's the evidence? See, all people are made in the image of God. And as such, as Paul explains in chapter 2, we retain a knowledge of him in our hearts and in our consciences. See, who does not instinctively know that lying, stealing, murder and adultery are wrong? Well, why are they wrong? Because they're contrary to the character of the God who made us. Now, I've never met an evolutionist who does not believe that lying, murder and stealing are wrong. Yet, if we are the truly the product of survival of the fittest, and if our thoughts are really truly the result of random chemical reactions occurring in our brains, then we shouldn't have a problem with lying, killing and stealing if it gains us some kind of survival advantage over others. It's irrational. They don't believe this, but they do insist on hiding behind the fig leaf of their scientific theories because they do not want to face up to the fact that one day they will stand before a God to give an account of their lives. 
Now, Paul goes on to uh, describe what happens to people who abandon God. And they experience something of his wrath. See, when they give him up, he gives them up. He gives them up to a depraved mind and foolish thinking. Their conduct becomes increasingly defined by idolatry, lust and sexual immorality expressed as male and female homosexuality. Not only that, but their attitudes become increasingly characterised by envy, malice, hatred, lying, arrogance, murder, gossip and all sorts of other things mentioned there. In other words, when people deliberately and willfully God give up, give God up, he gives them up to become increasingly less like him. The image becomes increasingly distorted. For God is love, and love is expressed in relationship. And all those characteristics describe, the break, well, describe what breaks down and destroys relationships. So how are we to respond? Well, Paul warns us not to judge, not to arrogantly point the accusing finger, for to do so would be hypocritical. See, judgment, he explains, is God's prerogative and his alone. We need to remember that this is what we've been saved from. We're no better than them. This is what we're all like in our sinful nature, which he commands us later to put to death. And when we see a society descending in this way, we should weep and mourn and in gratitude give thanks to God for his mercy, for there but for the grace of God go I. See, we were all once sinners, whether we're from a Jewish or a Gentile background. Paul explains, those who have sinned apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And those who have sinned under the law will perish under the law. Now, sin in some people is more, can be more open and blatant. In others, it's concealed behind a veil of outward respectability or religious observance. But whatever our background... Paul's sorry conclusion is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore the whole world is accountable to him. Now just as we are all alike under sin, we're all saved in the same way. Not by our own efforts, for no one will be declared righteous by works of the law. But we will be saved by a righteousness apart from the law as the law and the prophets, the word of God, testify. Believers are made right with God freely by his grace because of the atonement made on our behalf when Jesus shed his blood upon the cross and because God raised him from the dead on the third day. So there is no room for boasting. Jewish believers have no reason to look down on Gentile believers and neither do Gentiles have the right to look down on Jews. We are all alike under sin and we are saved by faith in what God has done. Now in chapter 4, Paul goes on to explain that this is what it means to be a true son of Abraham. See, son in the Bible means in the character of, rather than being a physical descendant of. So to be a son of Abraham means to be in the character of Abraham. And he did not depend on any righteousness of his own, but he believed in the promise of God. The promise in the God who justifies the ungodly and credits to them his own righteousness meaning he gives them his righteousness as a free gift. And he does this on the basis of sins forgiven. To illustrate this, Paul quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those 
whose lawless deeds are forgiven. See, faith is not merely an intellectual assent or an agreement. Yeah, that sounds good. I agree with that. No, faith, what's what's described is a faith that's manifested by a trustful obedience that influences all we do or say, where we live, how we live. And it's faith that goes on believing whatever the circumstances. And Abraham had this faith. He was not perfect, but he had this faith which was credited with righteousness. And he did so before he was circumcised. And he continued in this faith after he was circumcised, which is why he's the father of all who believe. All who believe in Jesus, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. So to be a son of Abraham, it does not depend on a physical descendant. However, there are people who kind of insist on looking at ancestry. But there's one important lesson we can learn from ancestry. We learn that we're all sons of Adam, both physically and in our character. And as Paul explains, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death came to all men, for all have sinned. So Jews and Gentiles are alike. We're all sinners because we're all sons of Adam. However, we're all saved the same by way. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of the many, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul is saying to Jewish and Gentile believers, see it from each other's point of view. There is no cause for either of you to have a superior attitude towards each other. We're all sinners. We're all justified by faith in the God who justifies the ungodly. And God has justified the ungodly by sending Jesus to die for our sins. Now in chapter 6 and 7, Paul goes on to say that when we become believers, that we do not instantly become perfect. We all fail. We all have a tendency to backslide and fall back into our own ways. It's not something that Paul condones. The Bible tells other believers to get people back as quickly as possible. Now, as as Gentiles, we try to justify ourselves by saying, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace. But Paul doesn't condone this and explains what being under grace truly means. He warns us that we are not to allow ourselves to become slaves again to sin. For a person is a slave to the one he obeys. So instead, we're to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now in chapter 7, Paul specifically addresses those who know the law, Jewish believers. See, when Jews backslide, they have a tendency to put them back, themselves back under the law, becoming legalistic. And Paul goes on to describe the sheer frustration of those who know the law, who love the law, who try to keep the law. And because they're still slaves to sin, they find they cannot. See, instead of doing the things that they, uh, um, instead of doing the things that they, uh, that they should, they find themselves doing the things that they know that they shouldn't. And in desperation, Paul cries out at the end of the chapter, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now in chapter 8, Paul goes on to describe what it means 
to walk in the Spirit. And this is the same for Jew and Gentile alike. For when we walk in the Spirit, we learn to think differently. We have new desires. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. When we are born again, born of the Spirit, we come into right relationship with God, in which the Spirit witnesses deep within us that we are children of God. And we experience that wonderful cry from within, Abba, Father. We experience an inner desire to identify with Christ in his sufferings and an inner strength to overcome sin and to put the deeds of the body, or rather the misdeeds of the body, to death. We experience a new strength to help us in our weakness. It teaches us how to pray and to desire to live in such a way to please him because we love him. We love him who first loved us. We come into a deeper understanding of the gospel that saves us. See, the gospel is not that we do not have to be righteous. The gospel is that we can become righteous. Not by our own effort, but that he can make us righteous by dwelling within our hearts and conforming us to the image of his son. And when we walk in the Spirit, we experience a new assurance. An assurance that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. An assurance that a glorious inheritance awaits us. And an assurance that God works for the, lo- uh, for the good of, of those who love him, those called according to his purpose. And an assurance that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. But notice to whom this promise is made. It's made to those who are born of the Spirit and those who go on walking in the Spirit. Now having laid that as a foundation and understanding, Paul is now in a position to address the question in hand. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, then what about Israel? Haven't they become separated from his love? Has God rejected Israel? Have they fallen beyond redemption? Has the Gentile church replaced them? See, this is what some of the Gentiles were thinking. This was the cause of the tension leading to potential division. And this is the question that Paul turns his attention to. And notice that he does not begin by going on the offensive. Instead, he reveals his heart over the matter. This is how the situation concerning Israel makes me feel. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, the Israelites. These were Paul's heartfelt, honest feelings that the Holy Spirit had inspired him to share. Now imagine the impact it would have on those Gentile Christians who were thinking rather too highly of themselves. And how many of those of us can read those same words and not feel some sense of conviction? See, do we feel equally distressed at the unbelief in the majority of Jews? Now, it's true that Paul would have been closer to them. For, for the unbelieving Jews of his day, many of them would have been friends and family. But let us bring it a little bit closer to home. How do we feel when we see fellow Christians led astray into the emergent church? Or the compromised gospel of the seeker-sensitive movement? Or those led astray by the word of faith money preachers? And what of those people who make a stand for the unborn 
and traditional marriage, sitting in Roman Catholic churches listening to deception. Do we feel the same? Now, when considering the charge that God has rejected Israel, we must understand what Paul, uh, that Paul is addressing this question across all three chapters 9 to 11. Therefore, if we take any one of them in isolation, it will lead us to a misunderstanding of the argument and we will reach the wrong conclusion. See, in chapters 9 and 10, it's as if he's stating the case for the prosecution. He's saying to those who hold this viewpoint, I understand where you're coming from. I can follow your reasoning. And this is what Paul says. The Gentiles who were not seeking God's righteousness have found it, while the Jews who were seeking it have not. Found, uh, have not. Gentiles, you see, were responding to the gospel in great numbers, while among the Jews there were very few. And Paul gives the reason. The Jews were so focused on establishing their own righteousness, their own self-righteousness, that they failed to see the gift of God's righteousness was freely available right before them within easy reach. Paul then asks the questions. How shall they call on him they have not believed? How shall they believe in him they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? But later on he draws the conclusion and he states that, well, they have heard. Did Israel not know? And he he concludes, of course they have. And see, when we think about the opportunities that Israel had had to believe the gospel, they'd had three and a half years of the testimony of Jesus authenticated by uh, by, by miracles. And before him, John the Baptist announced his coming. And when you read the accounts of John the Baptist, you'll understand that he was a character you couldn't ignore. And once you'd met him, you'd never forgot him. (laughs) And for the past 20 years, had they not had the testimony of the apostles? So Paul concludes by stating God's word through the prophet Isaiah. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now just because Paul could follow their logic... And the evidence on the ground seemed to support it. Doesn't mean to say that he thought like that. So in chapter 11, Paul begins the case for the defence. It's as if Paul is saying, if you are correct, if God has rejected Israel and replaced them with the Gentile church, then we need to ask some very serious questions. Let's follow your argument to its logical conclusion. Let's try to understand the consequence of what you're saying. If God has rejected Israel, what does that say about God? And does this line up with what we already know to be true? So Paul begins, has God rejected Israel? No, he always preserves a remnant. Have they fallen beyond recovery? No, their hardening is partial and temporary. Does God have a future plan and purpose for Israel? Yes, one day all Israel will be saved. And if blessings have come to you through their disobedience, just wait and see how blessed you'll be when they believe. See, if we follow the argument that God has rejected Israel, then we come to the conclusion that God can break his promises. And Paul strongly refutes this, boldly saying that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And Paul then appeals to them to try and understand God's ways in this matter. 
He states that God has committed them all to disobedience. For what reason? That he might have mercy upon all. And all means all. See, God makes choices. And the, and the choice that God has made is that he will deal only favourably with mankind on the basis of his mercy. So those who God shows mercy to are those who will humble themselves before him and ask for it. Which is why Jesus said that of the two men in the synagogue praying, that God only heard the one who cried, have mercy upon me a sinner. And it's why at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us who is truly best off in this life. Who is truly blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who recognise that they are so up to their eyes in debt with regard to sin that they cry out to the Lord for mercy. And so Paul concludes this chapter praising God for his infinite wisdom. So having dealt sensitively with this issue, not by direct confrontation, but by coming alongside, following their argument to its logical conclusion and showing them why it's wrong, Paul then shows them how they need to work out what they have learned as a practical reality within the fellowship. He starts by telling them to give themselves totally into God's service. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Let God change you by learning to think in his ways and start by not thinking too highly of yourself. Understand you've been saved because God is merciful and so is every other believer. So come to regard yourselves as members of the one body. When one of you weeps, weep with them. When one rejoices, rejoice with them. Build them up. Don't judge them. Don't put them down. And in chapter 14, he gets them to consider the issue most likely to cause tension between Jews and Gentile believers. He tells them to understand that certain members are likely to regard some days as special and they're going to have particular sensitivities over diet. So he tells them not to allow their freedom to become a stumbling block to those with a more sensitive conscience, those who observe special days and diets. And he goes on to tell those who do have these things on their conscience not to impose their preferences on others. And he concludes by, whatever you do in these matters, do it unto the Lord. Now Paul concludes this letter by informing them why he cannot come to them. He has to go to Jerusalem. See, the believers there are in great need. They're experiencing hardship and poverty. And he tells them how the Gentile churches he has been to, when hearing the plight of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, how Gentiles have generously given what they can to help. And it is Paul's responsibility to, give that, to deliver that gift. And you see, even here there is a lesson for the believers in Rome. Learn from the generosity of other Gentile Christians. They desire to look after their Jewish brethren, even though they've never met them. Surely you can do the same for those living among you. So there we have what I've, how I've come to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. Today, we've merely skimmed the surface. In trying to discern the reasons for which Paul wrote, I've attempted to 
prepare the ground to dig deeper into it in a future occasion. If God allows, God willing. And let us pray that God would grant us that privilege of doing so. That he would open the eyes of our understanding as we seek to know him better through the precious word that he has given us. May God bless you all. Amen.